What is Maine? Who is Maine? What are the stories of those who have lived here from the beginning, that migrated here, and that continue to inhabit this unique place? Close observers, who through words and images, strive to capture the details in fiction, history, art, and song. These are conversations from the pointed firs, invoking the spirit of place with artists and authors from Maine. Welcome to Conversations from the Pointed Firs. I'm your host, Peter Neal. My guest today is Peter Beckford, Maine farmer and storyteller who will introduce the work of the late Holman F. Day, journalist, poet, and raconteur, whose accounts of neighbors and friends, often in dialect, are classic evocations of the spirit of Maine. Peter Beckford, welcome to Conversations from the Pointed Firs. Hi, Peter. It's great to be here. Thanks. <laughs> we met through a... Um, a common friend who, uh, when I was talking about this program, he said, oh, my goodness, you have to talk to Peter Beckford, who has this strange, uncanny channeling capacity, having sort of inhabited the spirit of this 19th century, turn of the century, raconteur and storyteller, Holman Day. But before we begin, tell us a little about yourself. Uh, okay. I live in Liberty. Um, in Waldo County. I farm, Rebel Hill Farm. My wife and I raise perennial native plants. We've done that all our adult life. Uh, are you born in Maine? Yeah, yeah. Um, I was born in Bangor, lived in Bath, lived in South Portland, lived in Clifton, and Liberty now. Yeah. yeah. And how'd you get into the farm, into the perennials? Uh, yeah, sure. I uh, I apprenticed. I was a Mofgar apprentice on um, Bud and Barb Wallace's farm in Leeds, and I was going to farm once I had that under my belt. And we got into perennials because we didn't have much tillable ground, and it was a way to farm with without much open space. I do a few other things. I'm a poet, and I'm a piper, and I make boxes and things like that. My business card has a bunch of stuff on it. I kind of naturally fell into uh, Home and Day's poetry. It's kind of charming, and it's it's about farming and uh, the land and landscape of Maine. And I like history, so there's a fair amount to pick up from these these poems. You know, these these three books up in Maine kind of. Katahdin and um, Pine Tree Ballads were written between 1900 and 1910. A lot of poems in there. That's, that's when they were published. So the stories generally are about the 19th century. Mm -hmm. you'll, you'll see people, people hear these poems and they're fun, they're funny, they're romantic for sure. And they are about Maine, and, and, and we know Maine. I would say they're, they're about home and days Maine. You know, the, the spirit of Maine is, is kind of a slippery concept or idea, and um, it's, it's, it's somewhat made to sell, as we know that. It's, it's still selling pretty well, um, this idea of, of what Maine is, and come to Maine, and a simpler place, and the philosophical, simple people, whatever. He, he leans pretty heavy on that. 
but it's also very much like he's a white man you know in 1900 and so that's his perspective there's like hardly any women in these stories you know he doesn't write about native americans hardly at all what is is kind of sad you know his his take so can you remember the first time you came across one of these poems uh, yeah, it, it it probably is as best I can remember. It was um, at a Tim Sample concert. Could have been at the Common Ground Fair. He used to MC the entertainment night there for sure. And um, he has a poem that he wrote, "The Junk of Marshall Dodge." And I'm sure he introduced it and said he basically based it on a Pullman Day style poem narrative. So. Then I, I went looking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, this was would have been like, you know, in the 80s or so. And um, there were a lot of people around that had memorized Home and Day poems as school kids. In particular, a few of them. And people don't know them so much now. Though they're, they're kind of, they're written for reciting and for entertainment. And... They've definitely never disappeared. <laughs> well, there's a there, there's a rhythm to them. I actually sat here and, and thought rap. Yeah, some of them for sure. There's a beat. Oh yeah, there's oh, definitely yeah. a beat. I think he just wrote really easily in that rhyming iambic pentameter. I think he it just came out. I think he did an awful lot of it. So, you met Holman Day, possibly there for the first time at Mafka Fair. You found the books. Were you possessed? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no. It's, it's just it's the poems are um, they're they're easy to memorize because of that rhythm and because of the rhyme, and it's just fun. It's fun to to do one for somebody, you know, somewhere, and they touch on all sorts of of um, characters and events in life that are familiar to people. Um, do you do you find yourself uh, hearing them in your head when you're by yourself? Well, where they pop up, there are certain lines that myself and I know another friend, I have a friend who, who memorizes these, and, and it's fun to hear from each other, like, what line do you use in your life? Like, we have a, a saying around our house, this changing minds is a bad idea. And it comes from a, a, a poem about Elkanah B. Atkinson, who ran a tavern in a style that was just his own. And it's a wonderful tavern. A man um, from New York comes, kind of a typical person from away story. Um, and this guy is really demanding and patronizing and insufferable. And he goes to bed and he's, he tells Elkanah that he wants to be called for the early train. I, th I think what he says is, I want to be called at four, me good man. It's very important I go. But I find in these country hotels, the service you get gives a fella a pain. They don't even answer the bells. Now, I want to be called for that train, me good man. It's very important I go. So really, old chappy, 
Please see if you can just do a thing right once, you know. You may call me at four, and at half after four, I'll breakfast. Now, recollect, please. I'll tell you once more before I retire. You'll get the idea by degrees. So that's a portrayal of, of this, this guy. And he, uh, he goes to bed, and Elkanis stays up in his office all night, stoking the fire and getting breakfast ready because he's famous for his food. He goes up to, to call the guy at, at four, and the guy just keeps snoring. He's so comfortable on his feather bed and under the quilt. And, and finally, uh, he asks Elkanis if it's uh, stormy. And he's like, well, it's spitting snow. Finally, he tells Elkanah, I've changed my mind. I think I'll stay. Having put Elkanah through all this, and Elkanah says, this change of mind is a bad idea. I've sat in that office there all night so I could get you up all right. And it goes on from there. So there are some, there are some terms like that, like as calm as a sausage. It's fun. But I, I don't, they don't pop into my head, though I've, they're so ground in at this point that I'll do them in the truck when I'm driving somewhere or other, just there's something to do. Out loud? Yeah. So you're one of these guys that I see in the pickup going by me and you're talking to yourself. Yeah, we're I'm all doing home and day poems. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it gets to the point where I could be doing those and thinking about something else. Right. Were you brought up with storytelling? Were people in your family storytellers? Did you read early? Did you did you follow adventure stories, boys boys' adventures? Oh yeah, I liked reading. I, I liked reading. No, um, weren't particular storytellers. I wouldn't say there was some attempt to interest us in in poetry that never seemed like that interesting. Mm-hmm. Poems it was mm-hmm. the wrong poems, I'd say. You know, these are these are narrative poems. Some of them are pretty much short stories. And he, he wrote a ton of books, like maybe 19 novels or maybe 19 books in all. I don't know. Novels? Yeah, he wrote novels that are pretty great and short stories. Are the novels in print at all? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I kind of doubt it. Mm-hmm. But the, all of these books, these uh, these books of poems and his novels, you can find them used. Mm-hmm. They're they're around. He was he sold really well because they're popular. I mean, he was writing in the common speech when it really wasn't regarded as proper poetry. Right. You know, I mean, it, it, with, then Robert Frost came along and and some others, and but then that got lost. I think I think they were called modernists after that. Now we have you know. It's back, Billy Collins and a lot of other folks. You've made a selection. Let's uh, let's tune into your other self, and uh, maybe you'll give us a, a taste. Sure, I would say like when I'm doing a poem, um, it's not Holman Day's voice. You'll you'll catch on to that right away. It's he's written it, and it's in the voice of usually a farmer. And there was a short one I thought I'd start with just to to get us going which is called the the true story of a kicker whenever he says true it's um probably an indication that might not be true and i found that 
well, there's definitely old language in these and, and expressions, and I'll, I'll give you a heads up on some of them, or I'll just tell you what the poem's about before you hear it. And this true story of a kicker is about a farmer who stops to add water to his milk on his way to market. I don't think all farmers did that. <laughs> Probably adding pond water to uh, milk really wasn't right, though um, probably there are worse things to add, I'm sure. So the, the rest of it is pretty understandable, and it comes with a moral. In a lot of poems that um, end with moral. <laughs> they, they probably have morals, but this one's pretty explicit. This is a true story of a kicker. It's a short one. It goes, um, there lived two frogs, so I've been told in a quiet wayside pool. And one of those frogs was a blamed bright frog. And the other frog was a fool. Now a farmer man with a big milk can was wont to pass that way. And he used to stop and add a drop of the aqua pure, they say. And it chanced one morn in the early dawn, when the farmer's sight was dim, he scooped those frogs in the water he dipped, which same was a joke on him. Now the fool frog sank in the swashing tank as the farmer bumped to town. But the smart frog flew like a tugboat screw, and she swore she'd not go down. And she kicked and splashed, and she slammed and thrashed, and she stayed on top through all. And she turned that milk in first-class shape into a great big butterball. When the farmer got to town and opened the can, there lay the fool frog drowned. But hail and sound, the kicker, she hopped away. Moral, don't fret your life with needless strife, yet let this teaching stick. Sometimes, my friends, in the world's big can, it sometimes pays to kick. The end. <laughs> it's so funny, you know. The, there's little coincidences. I thumbed through these books yeah. before, and I picked that one out right away. Oh, that's funny. I just said, yeah. uh, well, it's a moral. It's a moral instruction. And it makes yeah. all the sense in the world. And, 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 and it's timeless. Oh, it's great. Timeless. I know. Yeah. I mean, and you can think about it in a few different ways. Yeah. You, you know, basically, I think about it as like, there's no point in giving up. I don't know if she knew that she was going to, turn it into a butterball and save herself but she just kept getting to the next moment and then something happened yeah, <laughs> and exactly. she was okay she was committed yeah she just i'm going to take it to the end fool frog just gave up well the philosophy is you commit yourself to life never give up <laughs> you're going to make something out of it if you keep at it i played football when i was in high school and what would frustrate the coaches was when someone would just stand around they would say do something, hit somebody. <laughs> and uh, you don't know, you know, how effective you might be. Yeah.
This is Conversations from the Pointed Furs, a monthly interview program with artists and authors who invoke the spirit of Maine, broadcast live the first Friday of every month here on WERU 89.9 FM, streaming and archived at WERU.org, and available as podcast at pointedfurs.org. I'm speaking today with Peter Beckford about Holman F. Day, storyteller and observer whose descriptions of life in Maine and dialect suggest the themes and concerns of our neighbors and friends from another time and place. Well, there is a kind of, of in, in the simplicity, simplicity of observation, there is a kind of mostly latent moral instruction. I mean, it's a, it's a way of how life is led. And that's the spirit. I mean, I don't mm -hmm. want to make it romanticize it either, but the but you know we're we we're constantly looking for meaning in the things that we do, and here's a here's a, a perfect example of an instruction that has a kind of fulsome implication for anybody in any time, you know, mm -hmm. Str strive and turn the milk into a butterball. Yeah, it's delivered with humor, yeah. which um, uh, yes. his his poems are. Yeah, you know, um, he doesn't really get critical. Um, he never sends you down that road there's i should say in the poems i know at least you know there are some that aren't that great there are some that you wouldn't read twice he's got some about like why are we in this philippine war it's not that great it's just it certainly isn't timely <laughs> but uh well he was editorializing yeah yeah and you, therefore it was not it was a failure yeah he was a newspaper man yeah, too so yeah, yeah. i i kind of suspect like did did he have a weekly poem in his papers or something? I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. no. You could find that, I bet, if there were, if it, mm -hmm. it probably all still mm -hmm. exists if he did that. Um, is that one of your favorites? Or you I, it is. It is. It's just, it's just kind of fun. I like picturing these frogs, and um, I'm sure it changed it from a he frog to a she frog, because you just, and I feel pretty free to do that. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't feel like I'm going to make any mistakes. Whatever. Well, next time you eat a frog, you got to you got to start it. <laughs> give me a, will you give us another one? Um, sh sure. Here's another one with a, a definitely has got a little moral in it too, that that I've done for a long time, and it's he breaks a lot of his books down into like woods around the home, uh, sea. Um, village life and one of his sections is called our liars and prevaricators um, but um, this one is pure home and day writing about a character um, and he's just really great at picking out things about people that that tickle him and it's a personality characteristic He's got a great one about a miser, and he's got a lot. And I could do a couple of those. Um, this one is about a guy called Plug, and it's it's about his his name, how he got the name Plug. The only maybe words it would be good to to know are um, he has a sh a chap shift his quid and tell the story of what he did, and a quid is is like a, a lump of tobacco. And uh, a lot of these guys chewing tobacco features in a in a bunch of his poems. He's got a he's got a poem about a a guy that dies apparently, and um, people are dealing with him, and then he, he comes to, and 
he says, uh, they want to know. And the parson runs, rushes up, what happened? You know, you've come back from the dead, resurrected. And well, he, he did get into heaven and he was questioned when he was in heaven. And he was thinking about his answer because it wasn't easy. And he said, whenever he does that, he shifts his quid from one side of his mouth to the other. And when it was going across his tongue, it, it fell out. So his, his chew of tobacco fell out in heaven. And uh, that was it for them. They sent him back. They sent him back. <laughs> yeah, I read that one too. It was really great. <laughs> they sent him back and it's as if he, just had, he had one brief moment and he lost eternity because he was shifting his tobacco from one side <laughs> to the eye to the other. It was it was a very delightful moment. Yeah. And it was sort of kicking himself. You know, if yeah. I had just left it on the left side, I'd, be, I'd still be yeah. there with the angels. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, this is a story of, of plug. Pumpkin pine is another term which you'll come across now um, in, in houses, beautiful pine. Um, I think of it as having a um, kind of orangish hue to it. So this is Plug. For 60 years, he had borne the name of Plug. Just Plug. Those many years had his village fame published the shame of his old time game till folks by custom came Call him Plug. At last, so many years went by, no one knew the reason why. At least they never stopped to think, and dropped the old suggestive wink. And he took the name, quite matter of fact, till most folks had forgot his act. Then some stranger would wonder at the why of a nickname such as that. A Plug. Just Plug. And some old chap would shift his quid and tell the story of what he did. Well, he owned ten acres of pumpkin pine. Twas tall and straight, and there wasn't a sign but what twas sound as a hickory nut. And at last, he got the price he sought. They hired him to chop it down. He did. My gosh, twas all unsound. Twas a rotten heart in every tree. But there wasn't none there but him to see. And quick as ever a tree was cut, he hewed a sapling and plugged the butt. Yes, sir, plugged the butt and hid away for about two months, for he'd got his pay. They never tackled his pocketbook. There weren't no legal action took. Twoulda broke his heart, for he was dreadful snug. But he never flinched when they called him Plug. And up to the day the crit had died, over the whole of the countryside, twas Plug, till most of the young folks scarcely knew which was the nickname, which was the true. He had 5,000 when he died. Pretty rich, but better less cash than a title such as Plug. The end. Uh, well, f first of all, wit, dissembling, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, 
I tell you, the rap thing is right there. Came, tame, wame. I mean, I just bang, bang, bang. Uh, that simple rhyme. Right up there. Just up right there in the, the beginning. Front. I love it. It's right? unbelievable. And 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 of course, it's the same thing. It's a, it's a it's a it's a simple, it's an almost mundane story, except something exceptional happens, and then you're stuck with a nickname. And and, yep. and, and there are a lot of nicknames around here. A lot of people carrying nicknames. Yeah. yeah. And, and this is like. It's a community correction, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, yeah. Um, and apparently he just owns it. Maybe he doesn't feel bad about it at all. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. I, who knows? Well, buyer beware. Everybody knew that, you know, that somebody paid True. for the tree and he, he gave them value and cut it all down. I, I had a friend who heard this and um, had worked in the woods most of his life. And he just kind of got in a giggle fit, telling me about how when they were sending logs to the mill, sometimes he'd take a lot of mud and just spread it all over the rot <laughs> in the edge of a log, you know? And it was just like, that's how he, you know, he could identify with this guy plug. And, and there is that feeling sometimes like, oh, how can I make a save? <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> I really screwed up here, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. or uh, or feeling like you've already earned something when when you really haven't, you don't own it yet. You know? Are there themes? Does he does he come back around? Like story themes, yeah, or, um, or just re recurring settings or recurring types? Definitely, like character traits. Mm -hmm. That would be one. He's got. Uh, He's got, I think, three at least that I've read about um, when to give up the deed to the home place, huh. like the timing of that. Those are pretty good. I'd like to learn one of those. Um, there's the old couple who um, decide to deed the place over to the son and daughter-in-law and um, the, the men, of course, the men go into the lawyer's office and do it. And on the way home, the son says, I think I'll take the reins. And it just starts breaking down. Pretty quickly, the old couple realize, like that day, they realize, oh, something's changed and it's not good. And they undo it somehow. Um, and, but there's other, the other stories that are kind of sadder. So th that's one of his themes. He got onto that a little bit. Things pop up, like patches. Here's this thing about patches, patches on pants. Oh, here's one that that comes up in. This is um, another character study, and it's about a man, Ephraim. The name of it is Ephraim Kept Three Dogs. And um, he, this guy has a, has a dog addiction. It's pretty serious, and it has serious consequences. And, but we'll be able to identify it, you know. I've got like, an old tool addiction. <laughs> this is this is Ephraim, and um, I don't think there's anything you really need to know. Pol they, it says in there they they baited Ephraim's poll tax. You had to pay a poll tax. So baited as they rebate rebated it, like they let him go on, you know, without it. And this is a this is a a village life story. Ephraim Eels, he had to scratch. Durned hard to keep ahead. But he always kept three dogs. 
He couldn't keep a dollar bill to save his life, they said, but he always kept three dogs. He said he might have been someone if he had had half a chance, but getting grub from day to day give Ephraim such a dance, he never got to where he could keep the patches off his pants. But he always kept three dogs. Ephraim's young'uns never looked as though they was half fed. But Ephraim kept three dogs. His house would be so cold, his folks would have to go to bed. But Ephraim kept his dogs. One of them was sort of setter dog. The other two was hounds. Their skins was full of Satan. They was always on their rounds till people durned their pictures in half a dozen towns. But Ephraim kept his dogs. They baited Ephraim's poll tax because he was too poor to pay. But he kept his dogs. How he got the cash to license them, it ain't in me to say, but I know he kept his dogs. And when a suffering neighbor ambushed him, Eve swore. Then, in a kind of homesick way, he hustled round for more. He struck a lucky bargain, and by thunder, <laughs> he bought four. Just <laughs> kept on keeping dogs. The end. <laughs> That that comes up too, like Eve swore. Mm -hmm. You know, that's that's noteworthy mm -hmm. in these poems. You yeah. know, there's, there's definitely a church has its has its strength here. Um, this is this, there's another one here. Um, pretty short sure one about um, a guy who swore. It's it's not spelled out at the end, but you can intimate that's what happened. Um, and it, I like this one because it's about a woman, which is super uncommon in his books. Um, and the, the women in his books are all identified by their relationship to a man. They're widows, spinsters, wives, mothers. And this is a widow, the widder bug. The term he uses is widder for, for widow. And, and it has church in it. Because a parson comes to help out the widow, you'll like how he portrays this parson who's a, who's a boss cow, thinks he can boss everybody, including farm animals around. And it, it's called the, the widow bug's calf. Old widow bug was a weaning her calf. She took half for itself and she gave it half. At a nice little trough, and the calf at there as calm as a sausage, I do declare. Parson, he called on the widder one day, offered to help her pitch down hay. And that nice little calf, said he with a laugh, I really must feed that nice little calf. Oh, there's work for me, and there's work for you. Hi, deedle deedle, there's work for to do, but it seems to me that each man's hands better stick to the job that he best understands. Look, cried the widder, you'll mess your clothes, better let me. But Parson, he goes, 
pours the nice warm milk in that nice little trough. But drat his hide, the calf hangs off. Parson, he pokes the little calf's nose down in the milk. And the calf, she blows, whoosh. And I vum and declare, Parson was a river of milk from his shoes to his hair. She told what he said, did old Witterbug. And the church has fired him out, Kurt Chug. Oh, there's work for me and there's work for you. Hi, deedle deedle, there's work for to do. But it seems to me that each man's hands best stick to the job that he best understands. The end. <laughs> yeah. There are, there are several Parson appearances. Uh -huh. And they all seem fairly ineffectual. Uh -huh. That's they, what, yeah, yeah. They, they sort of come uh, well intended but useless. Yeah, yeah. You're not you're not reading a, a lot of pious uh, writing in in his work. Right. He, right. <laughs> he saw through people. <laughs> the sure. dialect uh, when you're around. Uh, can you hear the the dialect still in your? I mean, you're 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 steeped in it. You're 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 studying and reciting it, and, and in your head and aloud and almost as a performance. But can you hear those 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 rhythms and those sounds around you when you when you're in the market or you're? I don't know about that. Um, I don't know that I, I I would put it that way. But I mean, you definitely pick up on. Funny expressions, mm -hmm. and you're like, "Oh, that could be that could be in a poem. Mm -hmm. That's a great uh, expression." Um, can't think of one right now that I could say on the air, um, but <laughs> that's that's what I hear, mm -hmm. and, and it's great when when they're old or you don't know where that came from, and mm -hmm. yeah. Well, you're an anthropologist in a way. I don't know, maybe maybe too big a word, but 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 in fact, it's the study of man, and uh, uh, that's what what appeals about all this stuff. Well, if anything, I'm a poet, you know, so I I uh, I hear I hear lines. So does it hear affect, lines? Does it affect your own poetry? Um, sure, sure to totally. Yeah, I mean, I've never written poems that were very hard to understand. <laughs> <laughs> well, as a, just a, a little interval here, would you? Can you give us one of your own poems? Oh, um, I got I got a pretty short one, but um, let me give me give me a chance to remember it. I want our, our listeners to hear that that uh, Peter has now pulled out of his pocket uh, one of the great classical documents of our time. It is a spiral notebook, about two by four inches filled with his writings, his scrawls, his poems, his market lists, his to-do lists. It's like a life encapsulated in tiny, this tiny little breast pocket notebook. <laughs> He's making a note now. Did I just say something that caused you to rem <laughs> remember no, to do I'm something? I'm trying to re remember the first stanza of a... Yeah. Um, I, couldn't get, I couldn't get anything done in a day without a... A list? Pocket notebook, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Have you kept them as a kind of an archival history of your life? Um, I, I've got a bunch. Yeah. Yeah. Here's, here's, this is the way I write. It was one thing I write. 
And this is this just first stanza of, of a few, but you asked for it. I did. Um, it's called. <laughs> it's called July twenty third, twenty twenty two. Birds own our farm. Blueberries own the birds. Bees grow the berries. Water is the word. Goes on from there. I don't know. They're like haikus. Yeah, maybe. Little. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. What's your favorite Holman Day poem? I'm going to ask you two things. What's your favorite Holman Day poem? And what's the Holman Day poem that when you recite them gets the greatest response? Well, that's a that's a close call. Aunt Jemima's pants gets the best response. I mean, you you can't help but respond to that poem, and and um, it's an opportunity kind of for me to perform and kind of act it out to a certain degree. And it's pretty long, keeps people going. Tale of the Kennebec Mariner is suspenseful and has a has a great kind of punchline maybe yeah i'll uh i'll give you a tale of the kennebec mariner if there's time i'll give you aunt jemima's pants because aunt jemima's pants i could recite doing somersaults down a hill really um tale of the kennebec mariner is i think it's out of one of his like stories of the sea but it's, it's a river verse and uh it, it, there is this great question like how could this boat, which he describes, the Ezra Johnson, how could it ever have gotten wrecked? And he, he describes why it, it wouldn't ever get wrecked, but it does. And so he's going to tell you how. And the story's told by the captain. And like some of the others, you, you have, maybe it's after you've recited a zillion times, but you start getting to know this captain, and you're like, you know, that poem's as much about the captain as as the as the boat if you are just joining us this is conversations from the pointed furs broadcast live the first friday of every month here on weru 89.9 fm i'm your host peter neal and my guest today is peter beckford farmer and storyteller and we are discussing the work of holman f day a lost voice whose poems and monologues evoke the spirit of maine there's a there's a really wonderful one poem called uh, Dumphy, Our Family Man, which is about a, a family man who works in the woods with a crew in the winter. And uh, tragedy strikes his family, and he's away in, in the woods with a crew, and, and they're saying, the woods is not a place for family men. And it's, it's a Christmas story, and it's, it's really touching, and it has a wonderful, wonderful feel to it. But in the end, you're like, you know, that's really a lot about the the single men who nobody loves that are out there in the woods and um, blowing their money uh, in town when when they can. Um, so this this I kind of have lately been thinking about about the mariner, and it's called the tale of the Kennebec Mariner. I guess I never told you, Peter, of the stranding and the wreck of the steamboat. Ezra Johnson that run up the Kennebec. This was before the time of steam cars and the Johnson filled the bill on the route between Augusty and the town of Waterville. 
She was built old-fashioned model with a bottom, flats your palm, and a paddle wheel behind her, drove by one great churning arm. Couldn't say that she was speedy. She sploshed along and made a touse, but she couldn't go much faster than a man can tow a house. Still, she skipped and skivved tremendous, dodged the rocks and scun the shoals, in the way the boats of these days couldn't do to save their souls. Didn't draw no amount of water. Went on top instead of through. And this is how they're come to happen, what I'm going to tell to you. Ain't no need to keep you guessing, for I know you won't suspect how that thundering old Ez Johnson ever happened to get wrecked. She was overdue one evening. Fog come down most awful thick. Twas about like navigating round inside a feather tick. The proper caper was to anchor. But she seemed to run all right, and we humped her, though twas resky, kept her sloshing through the night. And things went on all right till morning. Then, about half past Three, ship went dizzy, blind and crazy. Waves seemed worst I ever see. Up she went and down she scudded. Sometimes seemed to stand on end. Then she'd wallops, sideways, crossways, in a way by gosh twould send shivers down your spine. She'd teeter, fetch a spring, and take a bounce. Then Squat down on her haunches with a most Jerusalem jounce. Folks got up and run a screaming, forced the wheelhouse, grabbed at me, thought we'd missed a gusty landing and gone plumb out to sea. Fairly shot me full of questions. But I said, twas just a blow. Though, that didn't seem to soothe them, for there weren't no wind, you know. Spite of all that churning, there weren't a whisper of a breeze. No excuse for all that upset in those strange and dreadful seas. Couldn't spy a thing around us, for every way twas pitchy black and I couldn't seem to comfort them poor critters on my back. Couldn't give them information, for twas dark's a cellar shelf. Couldn't tell them nothing about it, for I didn't know myself. So I gripped the Johnson's tiller, kept the rudder rigging taut, kept her praying, charred tobacco, give her steam and let her swat. Now, my friend, just listen steady. When the sun come out at four, we weren't tossing in no breakers off no stern and rock-bound shore, but I'd missed the gall-derned river. And I swear this here is true. We had sailed eight miles cross-country in the 
heavy autumn dew. There we were, clear up in Sydney, and the tossins and the rolls simply happened because we'd tackled several miles of cradle knolls. Sun come out and dried the dew up. And there she was, a stranded wreck. And they soaked me $18 cottage back to the Kennebec. The end. That's a great story. Isn't that great? It is just great. I mean, it's, you know, first of all, the darkest stormy night. You're compelled by the narrative. What's happened? Oh, my Lord. And and all the little details are just perfect. Yeah, they're just perfect, and then and then of course the absurdity of the end, and the chagrin, and and the, and the anger that he's got to pay to take it, no. take, take it back to the river. I mean, yeah. it's it's, it, it, it's great. It, the, the tip off for me is he says the pro- proper caper was to anchor. Yeah, but she seemed a runner, right? Yeah. So we humped up. So we just went full bore ahead, yeah. and then like you can't see anything, can't give him any information. Docks a cellar shell. So, I gripped the Johnson's tiller, kept the rudder rigging top, <laughs> just like let her swat. You yeah. know, it's like let's go. Yeah, and what a <laughs> tribute! What a tribute to the boat itself, right? Yeah, flat your pole. Right, 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 right. Real right. good, real good for skidding over the land. And and it's like if the sun hadn't come out. Yeah. and dried the dew up. Yeah, maybe they would have got back. Well, this they... guy's thinking, sun come out and dried the dew up. Well, now we now we're stuck because the dew's dried up. <laughs> well, we might we might have run into a series of fronts, and they never they never would have discovered how far away we, they were from where they should be. No, it's a great one. It's that's the kind of thing, and that's that's where the wonder lies. There's wonder in that story. I can see yeah. how. I mean, I felt carried along in the, uh, as you great. as you recited. Good. That's that's the one that compels the people the most. Um, well, it's fun. It's yeah. definitely fun. It, um, Aunt Jemima's pants is just all right. Let's do that. Classic. Let's do that. And um, oh, the pants Jemima made is actually it's in pine tree balance. Okay. Um, this this one is so fun to do. Um, it's the pants Jemima made, and uh, I have a fond uh, memory of doing this at the Wednesday Spinners tent at Common Ground Fair, and. The women I know and Wednesday Spinners is, is uh, who I think of when I when I do this. Um, it's definitely like we have a, a, a woman hero here, though the story is told by a guy who's a farmer and um, and has a pair of her pants. Uh, there's probably some words in, in there I haven't really thought of them um, that might be nice for you to know ahead of time, but we'll we'll just get into it. Aunt Brown, Jemima Brown, was a spinster spinner weaver of merited renown. Our town set it down as fact, beyond disputing, that there was never any suiting like the suiting made by Spinster Brown. She raised the wool she made it of. She even raised the sheep, and she fed them on the toughest straw her hired man could read. She spun the thread with double twist and made a warp and woof so tarnal tough it really seemed was almost bulletproof. And when the cloth was shrunk and dyed and 
ready for a suit. The men in town would fairly fight. They'd get in such dispute concerning who had spoken first, the farthest in advance, and therefore had the prior claim on Aunt Jemima's pants. The cloth that folks make nowadays is slimpsy, sleazy stuff. It's colored up in fairish style and fashionable enough, but blame the goods, it's made to sell. It isn't made to wear. Why, these trousers here I've worn five years, and that is merely fair. But when you bought a cut of cloth of Aunt Jemima's weave, you got some stuff to last you through. You better just believe. I've got a pair up attic now, made 40 years ago. They're just as tough as iron still. Time has made no show. They've borne the brunt of honest work and dulled the tooth of moth. And there they stand, as stiff's a slab. Good, plain, old-fashioned cloth. And so I think it's only fitting that tribute should be paid to those sturdy old pioneers. The pants Jemima made. The first time I put on those pants, I held a breakup plow. Farmers of these latter days don't have such rassles now. I drove six oxen on ahead. A pretty hefty team. For farming in them old, old days took muscle, grit, and steam. You didn't stop for every rock and stump or dodge and skiv and skip, or else you'd have to lug a meal on every furrow's trip. Nope, the only thing to do was make the oxen tread, hold the plowshare deep and true, and plunker straight ahead. So back and forth and back and forth, I plowed and plowed that day. I tackled every rock and snag that dared dispute my way until the only critter left was one old maple stump. And I, I gave the team the gad and took her on the jump. She split in halves and through I went. But back she slapped, ka-whack, and gripped Jemima's pantaloons right where she had left the slack. The team was going double quick. The oxen plunged along. I held the old oak handlebars. I gripped them good and strong. And there I was, the living link twixt stump and plow, because the cloth it stuck there good and tight between those maple jaws. Now, Jemima didn't plan on that and making pants for me. She made them good and solid, but she gave no guarantee they'd withstand a yank like that. Still, I clung and yelled. The oxen plunged and tussled. Jemima's pants, they held until the stump come out a-kicking. Dirt and stones and roots and all. The pants weren't even 
dotted by that most tremendous hall. And to prove this air is truthful, should some scoffer cast a doubt, I saved the chips and hewins when they came and chopped me out. Aunt Brown, Jemima Brown, was a spinster spinner weaver of merit and renown. Our town set it down as fact, beyond disputing, that there was never any suitin' like the suitin' made by Spinster Brown. In the end. That's a great, yeah. great one. That's just great. I just love the image of, of, the, of, of the guy, the six oxen, plow, stump, pants, yeah. trapped in between. Yeah. And, yeah. and, the, and the, the strongest thing was not needed to give and it wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yep, yep, yep. It's just, yep, just great. Yep. Oh, God. Yep. We could read this all day long. Yeah, we could. We could. Um, Can you give us one more? A little one. Yeah, uh, short just one, a little one. Short um, one to bring us to the end. Sure. This is uh, This is just kind of the, the lightest. He, he might have written this, you know, in a, in a minute. Um, it's called Didn't Bust His Fork. I do believe, and um, it's a farmer talking about his son, who is all is all talk, not action. And um, the only thing in this is a horse fork, which is helpful to know. Horse fork is uh, comes down from inside a barn at, at the peak of the barn. It's a couple prongs that drive into loose hay on the back of a wagon, and then a, a horse, you know, hauls on a rope, and the the hooked hay goes up into the, into the hayloft. Um, so you, you're taking a huge amount of hay with these. This, this is, didn't bust his fork. Um, he could tell you what he'd done. He was eloquent, my son, in putting all his doings into mighty lively talk. But I've followed him around and by gosh, I never found that he ever lifted hard enough to bust his fork. He was always full of brag about how he could lift a jag that'd double up a horse fork and make the horses bark. But I never see no signs that he ever bent the tines or ever bruck the handle of his old pitchfork. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the epitome of some father's relationships. I know, I know. It's always a little sad. It's, it's kind really of sad. It's sad. like, well, what are you doing going around <laughs> yeah. busting did... your son? At least at least yeah. the son is even wanting to lift hay. <laughs> you know? And it's a small town, you know? <laughs> maybe, it, maybe you don't want to really ra ruin yeah. his reputation. Yeah. It's just yeah. a lazy nobody. I'd like, to hear the, I'd like to hear the poem that the son writes. Just <laughs> like I was saying today, I'd like to, oh, if, it, if there had been women in a position to write these poems then, what would those oh. poems be? I mean, how funny and revealing, and it's, it's like you lose a lot of history when it's, when it's not that way. I mean, we do have our windows on it, you know, through writing, and I don't know, maybe there are, there are poems that I don't know about. But, well, it's yeah. interesting the day is kind of a translator in a way. I mean, these men and their habits and behaviors and all the rest, I mean, not necessarily premeditated and perverse. It's just the way things mm -hmm. were, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And Day sort of comes as a in-between. 
he reveals a lot of the absurdity and eccentricity of, of at least that half of the equation, you know. Right. And the, right. Well, right. If it's even half, but it's yeah. it's like right. You know, I'm a well-off, happy white man observing other men. Yeah. And I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna write about what they say. Yeah. 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 Here's I want to close with this. This is a little bit from a introduction to the, right. the first edition in 1900 by a guy named Littlefield, Washington, March 17th, 1900. And he just sort of says at this point, I'm just trying to sum it all up, uh, rugged independence, singleness of purpose, unswerving integrity, philosophy adequate for all occasions, including shipwreck on land, the great realities of life, and a cheerful disregard of conventionalities are here found in all their native strength and vigor. These peculiarities, as delineated, may be rough, perhaps uncouth, but they are characteristic, picturesque, engaging, and lifelike. His subjects are like rough diamonds. They have the inherent qualities from which great characters are developed and out of which heroes are made. Yeah. 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 I mean, I mean we, were... we love Maine, we, you know, and there's a lot of Maine in these. In these and we find forget the time and the space and where we come from, we find these values still. And I think that's part of what, what we're talking about here is, is sort of something along the line of the essential verities. Mm -hmm. And you don't need a lot of falderall, you don't need a lot of fluff, you don't need a lot of things, but you do need, you do, you do need common ground and values that essentially inform a successful life. And I, that's what I keep finding yeah, in nice. these poems. Yeah. 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 Peter, thank you so much. It was lots of fun. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks, I, I really enjoyed it. My guest today has been Peter Beckford, Maine farmer and storyteller, discussing the work of Holman F. Day, the lost voice whose poems and monologues evoke the spirit of Maine. My guests next time will be Julia Lane and Fred Gosby from Castle Bay Music, performers and collectors of song from land and sea that continue to provide cultural insight and contemporary entertainment for anyone interested in knowing and feeling the spirit of Maine. I'm your host, Peter Neal. Thanks for listening.